You're listening to audio from Kingsway Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit kingswaychurch.org. Well, good morning, church. That was good, good. Welcome to Kingsway. We're glad you're here with us today. If you're visiting, we are in the book of Genesis, and we're like maybe three-fourths of the way through. We have just a couple more weeks in the book, and then we're moving on to the Christmassy things. Yay, everybody's excited about Christmas. Okay, some of you are excited. All right, real quick, how many of you decorated for Christmas? How many of you are waiting until after Halloween, the day after Halloween to decorate for Christmas? All right, all right, those are my people. Anyway, welcome to Kingsway, and uh, you will not be far behind. I'll give you everything you need to know to move on with today's story. And uh, here's the first thing I need to give you to catch up to today's story. Have you ever heard of a meat cute? A meat cute. A meat cute is literally, this is coming from MiriamWebster.com is a cute or charming or amusing first encounter between romantic partners, like in a movie. And you can pick your favorite, like, love story movie. Uh, You know, if they're um, Hallmark movies or Lifetime movies, they're pretty much all the same. But if you take your favorite movie, it's that moment when the guy and the girl meet each other and there's this cute first interaction between them. Somebody joked this morning and said, use the example of, it's like he goes to Walmart to buy a pajama top and she's going to Walmart to buy a pajama bottom and they, they're checking out at the exact same time and that cute little interaction creates it. Do you, you, you remember, maybe some of you are thinking about your meet cute, right? When you met your spouse and you're like, oh, I just remember the moment. It was adorable. I remember I was in Bible college and I was working in the cafeteria and I was serving food and my now wife went by. She was with her then boyfriend. Just like to point out that I won, but that's secondary <laughs> to the story today. And I remember looking <laughs> and I remember looking across going, yeah, she's cute. I like that. Then later she would sit in front of me in geology class of all places, again, with her boyfriend, and then noticed one day they weren't sitting together the same way. So open doors, right? There's a long story there I have time to go into, but meet cutes. When I was a teenager and then my college years, I learned one-liners that would help foster meet cutes. Did you ever have a one-liner? Something like, maybe you must be tired because you've been running around my mind all day. (laughs) You can try that one later. Or, Or like, well, what are your other two wishes? Here I am. And that was not as good. But here was my favorite of all time. I use this on my wife. I still use this on my poor wife. It's, do you believe in love at first sight or do I have to walk past you again? Come on now. No. You're like, go oh, move on. Get back to Genesis already. All right, moving on. The reason that's important is we're going to see one of the best meet cutes in the Bible today. Here's the setup to the story. So our male hero, his name is Jacob. And Jacob has created a lot of family stress. He has tricked and deceived his brother by stealing something called the birthright. He has tricked and deceived his dad by stealing something called the blessing. And now his brother, who's a twin brother, but it's fraternal twins, his brother is threatening to kill him. Literally, this is not like, I'm gonna kill him. No, he's literally gonna kill him. And so his mom says, Jacob, you need to go to my family. Run away to that land. And Jacob goes. And that's important because he goes alone. He goes on his own. He has like almost no resources. And God meets him in the middle of this arid place and speaks to him. This is where we get the thing called Jacob's Ladder. If you've ever heard of that, but don't have time to go there right now. And then when he finally arrives in Padan Aram, when he gets there, he's going to his uncle's house. And when he doesn't know that he's there yet, kind of in the general vicinity, he finds a well. And he comes up to the well and a shepherd has come in and he's got his little uh, flock with him. And he's like, man, I am famished. Can I get a drink from this well? Now, the way it would work is they would dig these wells down into the ground. And then a lot of times they would just cover them up with a huge and heavy rock. 
In verse three, and I think in verse three and four, they kind of intimate that really they would wait for all of the sheep to come in or whatever they were grazing. They would wait for all of the shepherds to bring in their animals. And then they would, it would usually take more than one person to lift this massive rock out of the way. And then they would water everybody, all the animals all together. And so while he's sitting there having this conversation, this is what happens next. Genesis chapter 29, verse nine. While he was still talking with them, the he is Jacob, the them is the shepherds. Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherd. Now, first thing that I ought to tell you is probably her dad, Laban, doesn't have a son because she's taking care of the sheep. That would have been a male job. When Jacob saw Rachel, daughter of his uncle Laban, and Laban's sheep, he went over and rolled the stone away from the mouth of the well and watered his uncle's sheep. This dude didn't even need a one-liner. This is the Feet of strength of all feet of strengths. I'm picturing, you ever watch the strongman competitions and the big dudes are like picking up the big heavy balls and they're like, you know, putting them up on the thing and they get bigger and heavier. This is that kind of moment. Jacob sees Rachel and the shepherd goes, oh, look, here comes Laban's daughter now. And he is blown away by her beauty. In fact, later on, in just a few verses, we're gonna find out she is lovely in the face and lovely in form. He is immediately infatuated with her and he runs over and he's like, hey, watch this. And it's like, whoa. He's mine. You know, so this whole thing is like unfolding there. She's impressed and he runs over and he kisses her and begins to weep aloud. And part of the reason he's weeping is he really wasn't sure if he wasn't gonna die in the desert. He's arrived and he found her and he's so excited. But not only has he found her, she's really cute. So he had told Rachel that he was a relative of her father and a son of Rebecca. That's, again, connections here, but Rachel's aunt would have been Rebecca. Rebecca was Jacob's mom. I know that's weird in our culture and that culture in that time thousands of years ago, it wasn't, stick with me. So she ran and told her father. As soon as Laban, as dad, heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he hurried out to meet him. He embraced him, he kissed him and he brought him into his home. And there Jacob told him all these things. Then Laban said to him, you are my own flesh and blood. Now they work out this deal. Basically, he lives with Laban for a month. He works for Laban for a month. He doesn't have any sons, this works great. And then he says, hey, Jacob, Look, you shouldn't work for me for free just because you're family. What's it gonna cost, right? You're living me here with me. I'm taking care of you, but what's it gonna cost? Let's work out a deal. And Jacob goes, well, now that you've asked, you know that smoking hot daughter of yours, I would really like to marry her. What if I work for you for seven years in exchange for your daughter? There's a whole thing in the Bible about the number seven and what it means. It means something beyond just the number of years. It means wholeness or, or, or completeness. And the reason that's relevant here is he worked, he completely gave himself to the job. He worked completely for her. And so he was like, hey, I have earned the right to marry her because he brings nothing to this relationship. He doesn't have anything of value to bring into this with him. And so it's like, hey, I'm gonna earn this right. And daddy says, yes. But then there's this. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes. We talked about her last week. If you wanna know more about that, go back and listen to last week. But Rachel had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I'll work for you seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, well, it's better that I give her to you than some other man. Stay here with me. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him. Because of his love for her. Let's all say it together. Ready? Aww. <laughs> anyway, so the Bible never says anything on accident. In fact, what we're going to see is from the time that Jacob leaves his hometown to the time he goes back to his hometown, which is what we're going to look at next week, 
at least 20 years have passed, possibly upwards to 30 years. So we're given like just a couple stories. So Genesis is not accidentally choosing what stories we hear and what details about those stories we hear. They are intentionally giving us details that are super, super relevant. So when it says this, it is setting up the tension of what's gonna unfold next. And what we're gonna read part of and we're gonna see unfold next. Well, let's start with this. So seven years pass, then Jacob goes to Laban and says, give me my wife. My time is completed and I wanna make love to her. And nothing says romance quite like this. And some ladies in the room have felt this tension before too. I've been out of town, I've been working really hard, and I expect it. It's my turn. And that just got awkward in the room. But this is what's going on in the text. Now in Jacob's shoes, you can imagine that all seven years he's out in the field working. He's fascinating and fantasizing about what this moment's gonna be like. I'm not sure this communicated love. Perhaps it did. Perhaps all seven years she'd been watching him and they'd been flirting and they were excited and the tension is building and it's really just, you know, this climactic movie that's about to unfold. Except that's not what unfolds next. If you heard last week, what Laban does is he throws a big party and uh, then he tricks Jacob by bringing in Leah, not Rachel. And the way the Bible views this is the consummation of the marriage, that intimate moment is what makes the marriage binding. It's not all the hoops and festivals and all the expensive feasts and all the things. It's the moment that the, the intimate act has happened, that the bonding occurs. And so once he has bonded with Leah, he's now married to her. And that creates a conundrum because he wanted to marry Rachel. And that was last week's tension, what happens between Leah and Jacob. But Leah's going to be in this part of the story because of what happens now with Rachel. So what happens next is Laban says, okay, Jacob, just work for me another seven years and I'll give you Rachel. And it never quite says, and that seemed like but a day. This time he works, he gets Rachel and then he works another seven years. He's put in 14 years and he's got two wives and those two wives are sisters. And the Bible never affirms having more than one wife. In fact, you see the tension in having more than one wife in this story. And what happens is these two sisters start fighting. But they're really two sides of the same coin, if you will, the heads and the tails, because on one side of the coin, you've got Leah, who has multiple children. God has opened her womb and blessed her in order to try to win Jacob's affection over to her. But she's jealous of Rachel because she can't have her husband's affection. You have Rachel, who has her husband's affection and desire, but she has a closed womb, and she's hurting and frustrated and angry. In fact, it says, when Rachel saw that she was not bearing Jacob any children, she became jealous of her sister. Now, let's just dig in for a second here. First, we are talking about the book of Genesis, and we're talking about infertility and Rachel's story. I will answer or do my best to answer wildly and sufficiently this question of infertility. I'm gonna give it like a minute or two on a topic that clearly deserves an hour or two or a book or two. And so I'm gonna ask for a lot of grace because today we're gonna to focus on Rachel and, and not on your specific story, but I do know that there are people here and at the end of today, um, we'll have our connect team down front. And if you are struggling with infertility, I just want to ask you to come down front and we would love to pray with you. We would love to pray over you. We would love to bless you, encourage you. And even after last service, I was able to pray with one couple and have one child but lost another and really struggling with all the emotions that get wrapped up in that and all the fears and the anxieties. This stuff isn't just theory, right? This is real life. 
But I wanna ask for grace because I need to address Rachel's story and it may offend you because it's not your story and that's okay. Just give me the grace to unpack Rachel and stick around to the end and then see if the Lord has anything for you. It says she was jealous of her sister. So I went and looked up this Hebrew word and the Hebrew word, this is not the American dictionary. The Hebrew word here for jealousy literally means a burning desire for something that someone else has. It is synonymous in the Old Testament with being zealous or envious, or there's this critical word, coveting. Literally, this word, this word in Hebrew, can be used in another context to talk about a zeal for the Lord, like a passion, it's a desire, it's a burning. I have to have this. Now, zeal or jealousy can be used in a good way. God is jealous for us. He jealously longs for a relationship with us. So jealousy in that context would be a good thing. But in this context, it's a bad thing. We're not just talking about somebody who desires to get pregnant. Yes, but we're talking about somebody who is deeply in their heart disturbed because her sister has something she doesn't have. And you can only imagine, right? I mean, dad has created this awkward tension because he took away what was supposed to be Rachel's and gave it to Leah, but now Leah's getting more blessed than her and it's just raging. But James says, James chapter four, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire but do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want. So you quarrel and you fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. Okay, so a few things. Number one, this is fast forwarding. So if you don't know, like the Bible, Genesis is the first book. James is almost the last book. It's right down towards maybe the last five books. I didn't count it. It'd be right back there towards the end. And that's important because we're talking thousands of years into the future. But this one little tiny word right here, if you've ever studied what's called the Ten Commandments, you may notice that I think it's the Tenth Commandment is, thou shalt not, at least in the King James Version, covet. In the Greek New Testament, we would use the word lust or desire. And lust, in our culture, we tend to apply it in a very narrow way, but lust has to do with this desire that's in me to long for something I don't have. If somebody else has got it, and I feel incomplete until I have it. And you can lust after someone else's spouse. You can look and say, well, if my wife looked like that or did those things, then I'd be happy. Or if my husband acted in those ways or did those things, then I'd be satisfied. You can lust or, or covet after a person's house their car, their kids. I mean, come on. Like everybody looks at my kids and goes, I wish my kids were like the perfect Nickerson kids. And it's funny because I know some of your laughs because we're really good friends and my friends laugh the loudest when I say that. It's because my kids aren't perfect either. But you can lust after someone's job. You can lust after where they live. But the whole idea here, what James is getting to, and he's really addressing Rachel indirectly is that when you covet, what happens is that desire grows and it creates a battle within you. In fact, basically what James is saying is all fights come from this place. You want something and you aren't getting it. Now, this is written to the church, the New Testament church. 
Is anybody in the New Testament church actually killing each other over this? No. What he's trying to say is the way that you fight with each other and you quarrel with each other or you gossip about each other or you slander about each other, the way you use your words to cut down or attack or to be aggressive or passive aggressive, when you do these things, you're killing each other. You're literally destroying each other. And your whole problem is you didn't get what you wanted. And so what do you do? You're quarreling with other people. You're fighting with others instead of simply getting on your knees and asking God. And then he goes on and he says, and when you do ask, you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your own pleasures. Now, I want to be very careful. James is not talking about infertility today. James is talking about coveting and the desire that comes from coveting and then what happens when it's not handled appropriately. And the reason that's important is some of you may have a completely God-honoring desire to have children. That is a God-honoring thing. God created children that then said, be fruitful and multiply. And so your story may not be Rachel's story. I'm dealing with Rachel's story. But this is where taking those stories and then applying them to our own lives, we all struggle with this even if it's not about infertility. And see, when this thing gets out of control, it creates tensions that start ruining relationships. Genesis 30. So she said to Jacob, give me children or I'll die. Notice the exclamation point. She didn't whisper this one. She didn't quietly text him. She didn't gently grab his hand and say, baby, come on. Let's go upstairs and make a kid. Now, she's bringing him into her coveting. And here's the thing. So, men, I don't know if you've ever heard of this, but there may be moments where your wife says something that offends you. And when she does, you've got a choice to make. I'm being serious. You have a choice to make. Proverbs 15.1 says, A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Anybody else guilty? So when somebody comes at you, whether aggressively or passively or passive-aggressively, you have a choice to make. And it's always your own choice. But when you lash back out, things never de-escalate. Everything escalates. It gets bigger and worse from there. Jacob became angry at her. And he said, am I in the place of God who has kept you from having children? How painful. Oh, if Jacob could have just bit his tongue and held it one more moment. Again, Genesis skips mostly 20 years of their life. It didn't skip this, and it didn't skip it for a reason. I think part of that reason is to coach us so we can learn. Paul, later on in the New Testament, he says this, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. This word for love here, I don't know if you know this, there's actually four Greek words for love. There's a word that describes intimacy and that kind of love. There's a word that describes friendship and that kind of love. There's a word that describes like things you like, like I like tacos and I don't love them. That's debatable depending, you know, on the season I'm in. But then there's this one Greek word and it really actually wasn't super popular in the New Testament times and the New Testament writers took that word and gave meaning to it because they started applying it to Jesus dying on the cross. It's the word agape. 
And that's the word that Paul chooses here. In other words, what Paul's trying to say is, husbands, agape your wives. Care for them the way that Jesus cared for you. So if Jesus did it for you, you go ahead and do it for them. And what did Jesus do? He gave up his life for the church. He gave up living in a comfortable bed for them. He meets their needs. He binds their wounds. He provides. He protects. He cares for. Jesus' harshest words when he was here on earth are for those who are actually leading astray. They're hurting the body. They're hurting people by how their words are creating burdens for them. He protects them even with his teaching. So if we just put this all in a blender and I go back and I go, Jacob, if only. But how many times have I looked at Matt Nickerson and thought, if only. Let's come back into the story. Now, what we're about to see is a very weird interaction. And uh, I'm gonna touch on this interaction, so I'm gonna read it, and I'm gonna explain it, so let's all laugh together about it. Um, but it's weird, okay? But I think it'll help you understand a little bit more Rachel's story. Here we go. During wheat harvest, Reuben, now Reuben is the oldest son, the first son of Leah. During wheat harvest, Reuben went out into the fields and found some mandrake plants, which he brought to his mother, Leah. Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, wasn't it enough that you took away my husband? Now, wait a minute, took away my husband. I mean, he worked seven years for Rachel, but this gives you the idea of just how broken Leah is in the story too. You took away my husband? Will you take away my son's mandrakes too? And you should be sitting here going, huh? Like, what is the big deal about this? I'll get there. Very well, Rachel said. He can sleep with you tonight in return for your son's mandrakes. Like Jacob is being traded between his wives like a commodity. So when Jacob came in from the fields that evening, Leah went out to meet him. You can imagine she got all dolled up, right? She went out and she said, you must sleep with me. I've hired you with my son's mandrakes. If you thought the Bible was boring, it's because you weren't reading it right. Like what in the world is happening? So Jacob slept with her that night. I'd like to just move on, but I have to address this, all right? So if you Google this, and I do not recommend you Google this, right? Be, put, go ahead and put your filters on high and then Google this, all right? Start there. But mandrakes are believed and still are in certain parts of the world today to be not only an aphrodisiac, meaning that they can um, create the mood, so to speak, uh, they also can aid in fertility. Um, so I'm gonna not go any deeper than that. And if you were bold enough to Google it, you can look up deeper if you'd like. But that is the backdrop to what's happening here. So the reason this is critically important is because it reveals Rachel's heart in the story. Remember, Jacob was harsh with her in his words. What he didn't do was nurture her and love her and care for her, provide for her. If you haven't been here, then you may not know this, but the Bible has been full of infertility up to this point. And it's got him throughout the Bible later. Samuel's mom is infertile. Many people in the New Testament story around Jesus' time are struggling with fertility. This is a normal problem in the world we live in. When Abraham and his wife aren't getting pregnant, Abraham talks to God many, many times, but it never tells us directly that Abraham prays for Sarah. 
When Abraham has a son, Isaac, and Isaac's wife, Rebekah, can't get pregnant, it does tell us that Isaac sought the Lord and he prayed for his wife. And then God opened her womb and she gets pregnant with Jacob and Esau. And it begs this question, if you're reading through Genesis, why didn't he learn from his mom's example, from his dad's example? Maybe it's because Jacob was too busy playing hunting games with Esau. Not Jacob, Isaac was too busy playing hunting games with Esau for Jacob to learn the lesson. So what's happening in the story is because Jacob didn't lovingly take his wife to the throne of God and pray for her and lift her up. They're still infertile and she's trying to manipulate God. That's what's happening here. Okay, well, if my husband isn't nurturing me and God won't open my womb, then maybe I can force the issue. Maybe I can make it happen on my own. Maybe I could take matters into my own hands. In fact, that theme becomes a significant part of this chapter or two. Because in here, she ends up going to her servant, Bilhah, and says, hey, you go sleep with Jacob, and she gets pregnant, and, and this is not totally uncommon back then, but she celebrates, I have a son, finally I win, I beat my sister, I have a son, but she never got pregnant, it was her servant. And then when Leah sees her doing this, she goes, oh, I can one-up you, it becomes an arms race. She goes, you take my servant, Zilpah, and then Zilpah sleeps with Jacob, and Jacob, she gets pregnant with another son, and whoa, and Leah goes, I'm back on top again, I'm winning. And then God opens Leah's womb, and she has three more kids listed, two sons and a daughter. And it's like, yes, I have far outnumbered you. And it's just this crazy brokenness going on in the text. And what we're seeing in this Mandrake story is this trying to manipulate God instead of just falling on our face and seeking him. In fact, when we try to control God instead of seeking God, things often go awry. And I just want to let that one sit for a minute because I can't help but wonder what would have happened if Jacob and Rachel had done that together. And perhaps they did, and it just doesn't tell us. But again, Genesis is giving us all the details that are relevant to understanding the big picture. So the fact that it tells us this story, there's a reason. It's not an accident. And if you were to do a story arc, if you know what a story arc is, like, okay, so I, I used to be a Marvel nerd. Now I'm just overwhelmed by it. don't care anymore. But back when I was a Marvel nerd, it was really fun to watch, say, for instance, Iron Man's story arc. You're like, how did we get to Iron Man from Genesis chapter 30, whatever? All right, stick with me. And you watch the first movie where he is this arms dealer creating these weapons and selling them to, the, and to destroy life. And he's, he's very selfish and he's arrogant and he's puffed up. And then by the end, after 52 movies or whatever it was, when he finally gets to the end in Endgame, he gives up his own life to save everybody. And you watch the arc that's called a story arc of this character and how he's grown and matured and changed. Well, if you were to go read Genesis now and go read Rachel's story, God is trying to arc Rachel's story to himself. That's what's happening. And so you read about this woman who's grown up in a land with a dad who doesn't worship the one true God, Yahweh. In fact, he has house idols and he does divination, we learn in the story. In fact, at one point, Rachel steals one of his house idols as they're leaving to go back to Jacob's hometown. And she's lying to her dad and she's hiding it underneath herself. And she's saying, oh, dad, I'm sorry, I'm on my monthly, so I can't get up off this saddle. And she's hiding his idol. Why does she need the idol? There's a lot of debate among scholars as to what's going on, but you don't need an idol if you have God. 
And so what we're seeing in real time is God is trying to reveal himself to Rachel and show her, I am good and you can trust me and I love you and I will provide for you and you are now caught up in this blessing and I am protecting you, but she won't yet learn the lesson. So it's a good reminder to all of us. Psalm 37, do not fret because of those who are evil or be envious of those who do wrong. For like the grass, they will soon wither. Like green plants, they will soon die away. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. Take delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Let me just unpack this. This is like a whole sermon in itself, Psalm 37. But a couple things. I understand two important things. Number one, if you are wrestling with infertility, you may not be envious of those who do wrong. That's not your story, so that's not what I'm getting to. The other thing I understand is that you, you may struggle with jealousy. All of us can struggle with jealousy and envious of covetedness, right? But this part here, like green plants, they will soon die away. What it's saying is, you may be looking at that tree right now and it looks like it's alive and it's producing and it's beautiful and it's glorious. You wish you had that. Yeah, but what you're gonna find is um, a lightning strike, a famine, something. <laughs> I think it die. So don't be envious of what you see on the outside. Instead, trust, lean your delight into him and God is gonna give you the desires of your heart. Now, this is not a manipulative system. That's exactly what James was trying to get to in James 4. You do not have it because you do ask. When you ask, you've got wrong motives, so God can't even give it to you. This isn't a system where, okay, I'm gonna come to church, I'm gonna read my Bible, I'm gonna listen to Pastor Matt, and then God is gonna have to give me whatever it is I want. No, 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 that's not the point. The point is to kill and subdue my desires into him so that he becomes the delight of my life. Knowing him, having a relationship with him, drawing near to him becomes the goal and the focus of my life. And when that is true, then he can give me the desires of my heart because now I know whatever it is he's giving me isn't just for me. I am blessed by God to be a blessing into the world. So if he's giving me anything, anything at all, it's to release it back to him and say, God, thank you for entrusting this to me. But now how do I entrust it to you? It's yours anyway. Yeah, you can clap for God. Thank you anytime you want. But this brings up a great question now in Rachel's story. Here it is. Rachel goes on and she ends up giving birth to a son named Joseph, who we will talk about in two weeks. And Joseph ends up with this cool technicolor dream coat. But what's really a big deal about Joseph's story is if God doesn't give Joseph when God gives Joseph, there's a problem coming. Everybody in the land is gonna experience one of the greatest famines the world has ever known. And God's solution to that story is to bring Joseph into the story. And it makes me wonder, what if God has not answered your prayer yet because he is doing something better than what it is you're asking? Let that sink in for just a moment. I'm gonna ask my slide people to skip the next slide and go to the next, next slide for time's sake. Because see, I want you to see in this whole thing, God is fully committed to seeing his children through to the finish. I just need you to trust in him. If God were to tell you X amount of years from now, this is going to happen. Maybe I'm gonna open your womb and you're infertile right now. Could you trust him today? 
What if he told you, I'm gonna get you a better job, I'm gonna pay off your bills, I'm gonna fix this broken situation in your marriage. Could you trust him today? If he told you, 15 years from now, this is gonna happen, here's all the pieces. But think God doesn't tell us all those pieces. <clears throat> what he says is, I need you to trust me today. Be faithful to me today. Know that I have your back today. I'm watching out for you today. I'm providing for you today. I won't fail you today. And I will lead you there. And whatever decisions you make along the way that kind of get off this path, I will gently lead you back. And if I have to, I'll very aggressively lead you back. But I will bring you back. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. So really what it comes down to for Rachel, for Leah, for Matt Nickerson, for you, do I trust him? Even when it doesn't make sense, even when I don't know what he's up to, do I trust him. So let me come back to Psalm 37 as I wrap us up. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him. And he will do this. He will make your righteous reward shine like the dawn, your vindication like the noonday sun. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret when people succeed in their ways, when they carry out their wicked schemes. Refrain from anger. Turn from wrath. Do not fret. It leads only to evil. For those who are evil will be destroyed, but those who hope in the Lord will inherit the land. What makes that last part so crazy? crazy powerful is the land is where we're headed. I'm about to open a scholarly can of worms and try to do it in 10 seconds. I'm not convinced that the land is what God was ultimately promising Israel. It is where he led them, the promised land. There's this huge debate among scholars about this, but I believe the land was supposed to point to God and his faithfulness to us. So ultimately, we're gonna end up with a new heaven and a new earth coming down and we will reign with God forever and he will take his finger and wipe every tear from our eyes. But the land is so relevant because in Genesis, God keeps telling them, I'm gonna give you this land one day, one day, one day, hundreds of years from now. So Jacob actually goes and moves outside the land in next week's story. He's waiting for God to give them the land. In Exodus, they finally go into the land, but they can't seem to get rid of all the evil and the sin that's still in the land. So we find ourselves in Psalms and David is saying, man, if you just hang on to righteousness, God's gonna give you the land. And then Jesus shows up and he says, those who are meek, those who are humble will inherit the land. Except for the word he uses there is earth. And the point is this, when we draw near to our Father's heart, we are trusting one day he is going to renew and restore all things. And so in this world, you're gonna have trouble. Take heart, he overcame the earth. And one day he's gonna give it back to us. He's gonna remove all evil people and all evil things from this earth. And the only thing left behind will be God and his goodness and his faithfulness to us. And we will receive the land. We will receive the new heaven and the new earth. And he will be the King of Kings and the Lord of lords and he will reign as our savior and our father and our friend over our hearts forever so wherever you are you are in a battle 
And that battle sometimes is for sin and it's trying to conquer you and master you. And God says, don't let it have its way. For some of you, your battle is for hope. I don't see you and I don't know what you're doing. I know, but just hang on because God's not done yet. What I want to do is I'm just going to say a brief prayer and I'm going to ask you to just take in the song Chelsea's going to sing over us right now. I'm just going to ask you to sit in it and I want you to hear this song as God's speaking these words to you. Heavenly Father, God, would you humble us under your mighty hand that in due time you could lift us up. God, I pray for us to be a people who don't chase after and long for the things that others have that we don't, but instead, Lord, to... uh, delight ourselves in you, that we would find you giving us the desires of our heart. God, meet us in this place, encourage us, and speak to us in the great, powerful name of Jesus.